The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Westminster. I wanted to thank you all for giving me such a warm welcome. The, the pastoral staff, the, the ministry leaders, the elders, the office staff, um, everything about this community seems polished and beautiful. And so I got to be honest with you that it's a little intimidating being up here uh, normally, I'm on campus where I'm lower than everyone because it's a lecture hall. So this is a little, takes some getting used to. But uh, since we've been here, we've noticed that this is a beautiful area. Manicured lawns, turf soccer fields, and I have never been in a more beautiful place of worship than here. And so it is, it's a little intimidating. And... Uh, it's easy when we see such polished people who are dressed so well and highly educated to doubt the doctrine of original sin. <laughs> but Dr. Rogers has testified that this community is filled with broken people and that this church is filled from sinners from top to bottom. And though I haven't had too long to get to know many of you, I've already heard several stories as I've gotten to know several people that there is brokenness and pain in this congregation. I've already come across stories of betrayal and addiction and abuse. So as a result of my early experience with Westminster, I decided to preach from Psalm 51. Dr. Rogers had one requirement. Preach the gospel. Now, for those of you who are uninitiated, gospel means good news. So he wants me to share with you the good news of Jesus Christ. Gospel does not mean good advice. I'm not standing before you this evening to give you good religious advice about what you should do, but to share with you the good news of what God has done for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now... This is good news, particularly for people who are used to walking around in religious circles and they expect from seeing polished buildings and well-dressed people that everyone here has it together. Because the psalm is written by someone who is a religious person, and guess what? He turns out to be a big sinner. And so if you are here tonight, and maybe you're a religious person who has struggled with big sin, or you're here tonight and maybe you've been shocked by the types of sin religious people have committed against you, I think tonight's message will be good news for you. Good news whether you are the perpetrator or the victim. This psalm is good news in both cases because in it we see the candidness 
of the, uh, we, we see the honesty about the craftiness of human sinfulness. We see the clear nature of repentance, and we see the confidence that God and all of us can have as he uses repentant sinners. So let's take a look at it. Psalm 51. I'm going to start with the title. First, notice how straightforward this psalm is about David's sin. You see it right in the title. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This brief note gives us the context of why David's writing the psalm. David had one of his best men, Uriah, who had been fighting for him for over 30 years. And David betrayed Uriah by sleeping with his wife Bathsheba. See, David had developed a bit of an entitlement mentality after all of these victories. And when it was time for kings to go off to war, David was sitting back and relaxing. And as he's walking around on the portico of his palace, he beholds Bathsheba, a beautiful woman, He inquires about her, and ignoring the warning of his servants, he spends time with Bathsheba. One thing leads to another, and Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David plans to cover up the pregnancy by quickly sending for his friend Uriah, who is off fighting in the battle, and he pleads with Uriah, relax, have drink, go home, enjoy time with your family, enjoy time with your wife, but Uriah refuses to go home and make love to his wife while his friends, his comrades, are out making war on the battlefield. And so David, afraid of being exposed, sent Uriah back to the battle with a sealed note in his hand that he was to give to the commander of the army. And that note said, put Uriah at the hottest part of the battle and then pull back, which is what happened, and Uriah dies. And after David gives Bathsheba a little bit of time to mourn, he takes her as his wife, hoping to cover his sin, his adulterous affair with her, thinking no one would know, but God knew. He sent Nathan the prophet, who brought David's dirty little secret into the light. Can you imagine what the talk of the town was in Jerusalem when this news hit the city. Shock. This is David. King David, the one who had faced Goliath when every other Israelite was too cowardly to face that giant. This is David who demonstrated years of patience and restraint when his predecessor Saul had betrayed him and hunted him down like an enemy. This is David who wrote poetry about God Psalms that we still sing and led his people in worship. This is David. He wasn't just a good guy. He was known as a man after God's own heart. He lived faithfully before God for a long time. And then when he fails, he fails miserably. What do we learn from David's failure? Even the best of us can fall into gross sin. Even people who got gold stars from all their Sunday school teachers. Even those who their parents say, I've never heard a crossword from him. But when we look at King David, we must remember, we're not just talking about the best 
of cultured people in our world. We're talking about the best of God's covenant people, the leaders. And we see this where even the best can fail from Old Testament kings all the way up to present-day pastors and Sunday school teachers. Even the best of us can fall into terrible sin. How does this apply? Don't be naive. Every one of us in this room is capable of grievous, self-destructive, and terrible sin. And if anyone in this room thinks they're incapable of that, you are out of step with the clear teachings and abundant examples in Scripture. Now, I'm not saying everyone here in the church will have an extramarital affair or murder or abuse other people. Being capable of terrible behavior doesn't equate with actually doing it. But knowing the capabilities of the sinful heart instills humility and wisdom. It should change the way we think that when we see other people go off the rails, we can honestly say, but by the grace of God, there go I, and mean it. It will be sincere. Now, while you should not be naive, I'm not saying you should be paranoid either. God's common grace is threaded throughout. He's written his law on our hearts. He's given us a conscience. He protects us, and God answers the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, even when we're not praying it. So we don't want to be naive, but we don't want to be paranoid. In my first two weeks here at Westminster, I've seen the pastors and the ministry leaders strike this balance extremely well. They're wise leaders who are not shocked or undone when they discover really dysfunctional sin in the members of the congregation. They remain poised and hopeful, but they're not naive. And they're humble about their own struggles and temptations. It's very honoring to to work beside them. And this balance of being neither naive nor paranoid is exactly why Westminster is offering seminars like the domestic abuse seminar that's going to be coming up on September 30th. The goal is to help our church recognize, respond, and rescue those who are living under domestic abuse. And already the leaders are praying that wherever it exists in the dark corners of our community, that it would be brought into the light so that there can be healing. I encourage you to attend that on September 30th. So David's psalm warns us not to be naive, and if you are somebody who has succumbed to temptation, it also applies to you. It means don't assume you're alone. Everyone is tempted to hide. But people with a reputation who've been religious for a long time are very, very tempted to hide. They feel they have no choice. Their very identity would be ruined if anyone would know what's really going on between them and their spouse or their kids. They feel like they have no choice but to fake it. It seems less painful that way than the pain they would endure by coming into the light. But the gospel says that's not true. 
But as long as we believe it's true, we'll stay in the dark. Feeling increasingly isolated, growing in our shame and despair, and eventually feeling dead inside. And if that describes you, I want to encourage you, you're not alone. The Bible is filled with people just like that, terrible sinners, major biblical characters that were murderers and adulterers, main characters who were cheats and cowards, and God in his mercy did not leave them to live in the darkness, but he brought them into the light. And yes, it was terrifying and painful, just as it is for David in Psalm 51, but it's also the only path to life. And so this psalm is honest about the craftiness of sin. It warns us, don't be naive, and it encourages us that we're not alone in our sin. There's another thing this psalm shows us. It clarifies two aspects of real repentance. First, it shows us that that real repentance, it's not about bartering with God. Notice verse 1 and 2. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice what David does and does not do. He's not bartering with God. Instead, he admits the full extent of his sin, and he calls out for God's mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. Not according to how crummy I feel, not according to how hard I pray, but according to what? According to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. David is basing his hope for mercy on one thing and one thing alone. Who God is and what God has done, not on who he is and what he can do. And so he appeals at the end of verse 1 and verse 2, blot out my transgression. How do you blot out a stain? Any stain. Think about a wine stain or a blood stain on a carpet. To blot it out, something else, a sponge or a rag, needs to absorb it or soak it up. In the same way, David knows, in order for his sin to be blotted out, an outside agent must do it. He cannot clean himself. And he knows that the only outside agent with the necessary cleansing power to get in the nooks and crannies of his dark heart is God himself. God must absorb it. God must soak up his blood guilt in order for the stain to be removed. And so David's not bargaining with God, but he's crying out in desperation, have mercy on me. Bargaining with God and calling out for mercy, there could be no things that are more different than that. Those two things are very different. But David goes beyond that. In the light, he can no longer deceive himself. Look at verses 3 and 6. He says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was bought forth in iniquity and in sin, did my mother conceive me. See, David recognizes and takes full responsibility for his sin. He's done trying to manage it. He sees it for what it is. And without excuse or equivocation, he takes ownership. Now you might be thinking, 
Well, then why does he say what he says in verse 4? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Really, David? I imagine Uriah might disagree with that. Uh, Yo, David, you sinned against me too. Of course, David recognized that he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. He admitted as much in the title of the psalm. He's using hyperbole here to express the despair he feels over the extent of his sin. And he's doing it in poetry. This is not a legal treatise. He's exposing the root of his offense and acknowledging that the ultimate offense is against God. Ultimately and primarily. He refuses to do what so many of us do when we're feeling guilty. We say, well, as long as no one else knows what happened, it'll be okay. Well, Uriah never knew what happened. God knew. Or we say, but, but I'm not the only one to blame here. Others were complicit. I mean, really, what woman bathes on her roof, rooftop in plain sight of other men? She seduced me. No, David left excuses and equivocations behind. His sin is against God, and therefore he refuses the false comfort of bargaining with God. And David knows where the blame for his sin truly lies. In verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Far from blaming his mommy for parental issues, David is saying, listen, I've been this way a long time. From day one, from the beginning, he's admitting that his heart was always capable of this type of sin. It was prone to wander. He just needed the opportunity, which came with a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. And so you put all this together and see why David has given up bartering with God. And besides, he's probably already reached that point where he, he realizes the inevitable conclusion that bartering leads to insecurity. How do I know if I've done enough? How do I know if God won't tire of my repeated mistakes? See, that insecurity is a path to death. And so he goes down this new path, full ownership, full confession, calling out for mercy out of a humble self-awareness. And that's the path that leads to life and forgiveness and grace. So stop bargaining with God and call out for mercy. The other part of repentance that we see here. So the second part of repentance here is focus on God, your relationship with God. And don't be distracted by anything else, even when your pastor gets sticky fingers and two pages stick together. Notice how he focuses on God in verses 6 through 12. He says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Again, understand what David is not asking for. He's not asking what so many of us in a similar situation when we're caught with our hand in the cookie jar ask for, which is, help me save face. Save my reputation. Save my status. Save my position. Don't let me experience the consequences. David doesn't ask for those things. Instead, he aligns his values with God's 
and then pleads for God to do something much deeper. Well, what does God value here? David acknowledges God's value in verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. God delights to ingrain his truth into your psyche. His main goal is not to simply relieve discomfort or, or tension or difficulty from your struggles and the embarrassment of your sin. No, God wants to teach you wisdom in the inmost place and not simply improve your situation or change it. And that's why David pleads, purge me, restore to me joy, clean my heart, put a right spirit in me, and don't cast yourself away from me. Notice how God focuses this. He says, stick with me, God. Restore me. Uphold me with a willing spirit. David pleads for personal redemption here, not situational deliverance. His deepest need wasn't to be given a second chance or an opportunity to do a takeover, but he wants a clean heart, a renewed spirit. His greatest aim isn't to have God's blessings, but it's to be restored to God. How does that apply? If you're struggling with shame, where's your focus? As long as you're focused on simply avoiding more embarrassment, you'll tend to miss your painfully obvious need. You need God. You need him to work his grace into your life, to change you from the inside out. You need his power to cleanse you, to heal you, to redeem your dark history. Only he can cleanse what's festering in your heart. Only he can restore you. And so, plead for him to give you his inexhaustible power to conquer your shame, your addictions, your fears, your resentments. Direct your time and your energy to your relationship with God. Ask him to give you a new heart that willingly loves and obeys him. Stop worrying about your reputation or your status, or your comfort. Those things are petty by comparison. Like David, ask him to restore the joy of God's salvation. Now, if there is anyone here this evening wasting away, in secret, isolated, afraid, ashamed to let anyone know what's really going on, it is only God who can heal you. Only God who can give you the relief that you seek. And I encourage you to come to him. Confess. Come into the light. It will be a painful but life-giving path. And if you need more, ins- more assurances, more certainty before you take such a risky step, let me remind you that this psalm points ahead to the greatest assurance that you can ever discover. When David wrote this psalm, he only had bits and pieces of how God would redeem his messy life. How God could absorb his sin and somehow get the stain out. And while David only had bits and pieces of the puzzle, we have the full picture. Because all the pieces of the puzzle have been filled in by what's been recorded in the New Testament about Jesus. 
God has absorbed all of your sin, no matter how messy and dysfunctional and wicked, into himself in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross, that is good news. That is not good advice. You didn't do anything to get him to do that. That has been done for you. And David's hope was that God would not abandon him in his sin. But his hope was vague. When he pleaded, God, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But we have more certainty. Because when we come into God's presence, repenting and asking for God's mercy, in the name of Jesus Christ, we can have full confidence that God will never forsake us. Why? Because Jesus stood on a, hung on a cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it wasn't a rhetorical question. There's an answer. The son was forsaken. Jesus Christ was forsaken for you and for me so that we would never be forsaken and left by God, no matter how dysfunctional and sinful we are. That is good news. So don't be naive to the craftiness of sin, but at the same time, Know the true nature of repentance. It's not bartering with God. It's calling out for mercy. And it's not focusing on your comfort. It's focusing on your relationship with God. Spend time with him. Discover what he has done for you. And you will find the hope and the forgiveness and the mercy that you need. And as you truly repent, let me assure you that God still has use of big sinners. He is a good God who has plans for you that are greater than you suspect. And we see this in how David's psalm ends in verse 13 through 19. We see how David's prayer clarifies, get this, the usefulness of big sinners who repent. Notice, he says, then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And then bulls will be offered on your altar. Notice the usefulness God makes of repentant sinners. They become sympathetic and credible agents of redemption. Look at verse 13. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn to you. They're teachers with credibility. Why? Because to cynics and skeptics who deep down believe no one can really change, if you're that way, you're going to be that way till you're put in the grave. There are people who have a story and say, no, I was that way. But God in his mercy and grace has redeemed me and changed me and turned my life around. And they become an example, a credible example But more than that, they become sympathetic teachers. Not people who look down their nose at others who have issues and problems and dysfunction. But they have eyes that see with mercy and tenderness and patience. 
who can help people navigate their fears of coming into the light and can gently but firmly draw them into the light because they've already walked that path. See, repentant sinners are not only useful, they are very useful. Useful as sympathetic, incredible agents of redemption. But more than that, in verses 14 and 17, as authentic and energetic worshipers. Look, David is a repentant singer in verse 14. He is singing loudly. Do you ever worship next to someone who is reveling in the forgiveness of God? It doesn't matter if they have no ability to sing. They sing loud. They sing with their heart and their soul, and it is beautiful to watch, even if it's painful to listen to. And in verse 15, he says, his mouth declares God's praise. These people are extremely helpful in any community of believers because every community of believers goes through seasons, every church, every campus ministry, goes through seasons of apathy and exhaustion. And that's why we need people who are fresh with God's grace. They're like newlyweds, energetic, authentic, tender in their expressions of love and gratitude. And such heartfelt, God-glorifying worship contaminates those around them. Contaminates people on Sunday morning because they sing with joy and hope. And it doesn't matter if it's the music they prefer. They sing with joy whether it's from the Trinity hymnal or whether it's a contemporary music on a projector hung by, you know, bed sheets so that you can reflect off of it. They sing with joy as authentic, energetic worshipers. And so if you are feeling apathetic or tired, the counterintuitive thing for you to do is spend more time with outsiders, with newcomers, with strugglers. I beg you, reach out. Find time for people that don't have it quite together who are having a hard time making ends meet. And as they discover God's salvation, it will be refreshment to you. I was in the Connections class this morning, and uh, Darla Esh, or Darlene Esh, was sharing about the joy she has from the ministry she's doing in ESL. It's a beautiful thing. My question for you is, are you part of that? Don't simply look as the church or the pastor's to reach out to outsiders? Are you, through your conversation, through your nonverbals, are you, in the subtleties of your behavior and your demeanor, welcoming those who have problems, who are broken, who are ashamed? Lastly, not only do repentant sinners provide a credible witness and authentic and re-energized worshipers, they also are full of goodwill. Notice verse 18 and 19. He says, do good to Zion. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you'll delight in these sacrifices. See, they are so filled with God's grace because they've been forgiven big that they just want others to experience it. And so they speak words of blessing constantly. So the closing application, what good is a big sinner like me if you're sitting there? Or what good is a big sinner like them if someone is in your life that's a big sinner? Well, if they are repentant, they are of tremendous good. 
And so let us be a church that works to bringing people to repentance of their sin and faith in Christ. It will contaminate you with grace so that you can shine as an instrument of grace. It will make you contagious in worship that not merely compensates for the lack of joy of those around you, but transforms the apathy of those around you into joy. And let your speech always be quick to bless. Let's pray. God, thank you for this psalm. Thank you that it clearly warns us about the craftiness of sin. It shows us very clearly what real repentance is about. And it gives us great confidence about the usefulness of repentance sinners. God, we pray that you would penetrate the truths of this psalm deep into our heart. That we would see the good news that Jesus is the one that comes and gives us everything we need. And that whether we are the struggler or we are the ones helping others struggle, that we would do the thing of primary importance and call people to get over their discomfort, to get over their need to save face, and to come. Come before a holy God who alone can cleanse and redeem. We pray this in Jesus' name.